And I realized the last several weeks, uh, I, I, I did as well last week, talked about if we just stopped long enough to look around and think about all these uh, billions of people that we spend it, that have the that we're sharing the world with, I think we're past seven billion, aren't we? Coming on eight, is that is that right? About how many billion people are in the world? Yeah, coming on eight it was half of that a century ago, and here we are, and there's still room on this planet, but there's not clean air enough or water enough or food enough or it would be if we stopped fighting with each other and uh, if we cooperated with each other and if we stopped polluting the planet then maybe I just heard some really despairing as I'm saying this I'm thinking don't start with such a despairing remarks of it everybody will first of all they won't go away but they'll start out with a low heart why don't you start out with something uplifting like kindness because I, you know, you have to, I'm going to, I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to read to you right away an article called, We Have to Learn to Look at Grief. We just have to look at what's going on. And not only what's going on in Ukraine now, not only what's going on in um, other places in the world where strife is happening. But let's look around at the at the the reports that come out about uh, the uninhabitableness of this planet by the end of this century. And I thought that this morning I was hearing something, and I thought at least I won't be here, and my children won't be here, but my grandchildren might be, and my great grandchildren definitely will be. And or if they're lucky enough, and and their children, if they, that's not so far away. That's four generations away on an uninhabitable globe. So if you did purposely put that up, Jeff, I'm glad you did, because I think people must be feeling that. And I do think we have to learn to look at grief. I read this article. It's in out of Sunday's Times, and I changed the title to it. What we have to do, we must learn to look, not just to grief, but look at what's going on and look at what we're doing. And then I thought to myself, I remember saying approximately the same thing last week. I said, if we look around, it's at least for me very easily, I'm very easily, I am very easily uh, melancholic about it. Uh, maybe you all are. I am very easily uh, despairing about it and not hopeful. So I think what needs to happen for me to feel hopeful? And then something happened that I can't remember what it was. Oh, I found something. I was tidying up my desk here because I didn't want people to see me with a messy desk. I was tidying up my desk, and I came upon a, um, I came upon a, an old issue that I saved of, uh, be interesting to see, it's a New Yorker from only five years ago. And it's in an article, of, it's in a, uh, a humor article that they publish every 
my, every week. Uh, and it's really funny. And it's about, it's about meditating. And I read it. And I even started to laugh out loud because it's really funny. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. I hear I am so moped out from this morning's news and from the news that you probably have seen in this morning's paper and yesterday's paper and the um, the other news media that are coming through and the latest news and breaking news. And I thought, you know, maybe it's not nice to read the gathas. Gata. A gata is a prayer that you say over and over and over again. Thich Nhat Hanh used that word a lot. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. That's a Thich Nhat Hanh gata. And these are, this is breathing in. I, you know, I read the gata and I laugh. I thought maybe I should start with that. But I don't think so. I think I should save it. And if I feel like I'm too moped out, how about I'll do this. I will deputize, I will deputize Jeff. I'll deputize Jeff. As soon as you feel too mopey, you put that icon with the crying face back up, okay? And then it'll mean lighten it up or say something else or put it into a uh, bigger context. How about Nancy? I'll, I'll, I'll deputize her as well to do that. Nancy Weiniger, okay? Nancy, you into it? <laughs> Now I have to get everybody onto my screen because I have just me and I don't like that. I like to look at all of you. Okay, there we are, all of us. Where's Nancy? Where is it? Where's Nancy? She must have gone. There you are. Okay. And Jeff is right there. Okay. So if it gets too morose, I'm not going to start with morose. I'm going to start by telling you what I want to do. We have this two hour period. A little bit less than that, but we have an hour, let's say an hour and a half. And usually we sit a little, and then I talk a lot, and then we sit a little bit more, and then we have a Q&A. I would like to do it differently today. I would like to teach you by living through with you the instructions for a meta retreat, the instructions for if you went for a whole week to a meta retreat. And every day they would give instructions, and every day you would do those instructions all day long. And the next day they'd add another instruction, and the next day another instruction, all the way through the week. So that at the end of the week, if everything else goes as expected, your attention will be very focused because you have been paying attention to just the um, uh, cultivating of goodwill towards everything that comes up in your mind in the course of the day, goodwill towards the cooks who cook the lunch, goodwill to the uh, birds that are coming around or the turkeys that are in this season of the year are just looking to create more turkeys and carrying on about it. All the beautiful things of nature, all the wonderful meals, all the beautiful aspirations of the people with you here in this this uh, global room and, and when we're together in Spirit Rock there. And in between, I'll give you instructions. And then I'll in between the instructions, I'll talk about all the things I wrote down to talk about that cumulatively, I thought if I just roll through all these thoughts, it's too heavy. We have to do them 
slowly. It's not diverting. And we have to pay attention to grief, but we have to pay attention in a way that we can possibly hear it. So this is, is that all right with you? It has to be all right with you. I didn't prepare anything else. So <laughs> we'll do that. But we'll start with the Metta Sutta. Uh, they say that, um, thus have I heard, which is how most suttas begin, when the Buddha sat down and his followers sat down around him. And he said, I'll read it all the way through. Now I'll go back to parts of it. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, contented and easily satisfied, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen and the unseen, those living near or far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Really think about that. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should we cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed of addiction to desire, is not born again into this world. There's so many things we can say just about the Metta Sutta. I've said it, I don't know how many times in my life, when I travel to teach, it's the only thing I take with me. Um, so that when I arrive at any place, this is in the days when people still went places to teach, uh, 
I didn't have to think about duplicating handouts. That was the only thing I had. And now when it's all digitalized, it's certainly on my, on my phone. And everybody's got uh, screen shares and big screens, even for a rock, big screen in its meditation hall. And every once in a while I have a, um, I ask people to listen and decide what is their favorite line or what do they think is the most important line. And for a while I thought I knew the answer and I would do it as kind of a game at the end of a week-long retreat. I'd pass out copies of the Metta Sutta that I would in fact duplicate. And I'd ask people to be in groups and each group could decide which is the most important line, where is the real message. And usually if there are 10 groups, 12 groups, they all have a different line. So I quickly learned that there isn't a right answer to this, that, that 12 lines was, had to be, stand, the person who's in your group can stand up now, uh, the spokesperson, and say which line did you choose and why, and everybody would say which line they chose, which group, and they'd have a very good reason for that being the real line. So we might do it later, I won't even tell you. As I change all the time, as I read it through right now, decided this morning I have a different line. I was going to give you a hint, the line is in the Metta Sutta. <laughs> but of course it is, that's what, the, that's, what, that's what the task was. But it wasn't the line I always pick. I'll tell you what I did pick, because it's important for starting. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This is said to be the sublime abiding. What's a sublime abiding? Earlier on, the hint is in the first beginning. It says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. When I can wish, may all beings be at ease. It means that I am not stuck in any views that make people into the good people and the bad people or the acceptable people or the confused people. When I have, when I, when my heart is wide enough to say we are all people making the only judgment we can at the moment, because that's what we've been neurologically and familiarly and socially and physically prepared to do. We couldn't be better. We couldn't be different. We're just how we are. The only response is compassion, I think. But now it seems to me that that should be the meditation that we begin with. The wish out of one's own gladness and safety that all beings should be at ease. So just before we sit, I am hearing a lot of noise of my neighbors doing some something that was using big machinery. Can you hear it or are you all right? We can, can hear I, it. Yeah. You can hear it? Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. 
well, I'm going to do something unusual. I'm just going to go see if I can call over the fence and get them to stop. Is it terrible? I guess, you know, we can use it as part of the practice, as they often say, but we can certainly yeah, I do say, and <laughs> we, we may have to, but let me, let me make a check on this and see, hold on. Thanks for uh, your patience, everyone. I have heard from a few folks that it was distracting, very distracting, not terrible. So thanks. I know there's lots of um, different ways with dealing with those unexpected noises. This is Jeff. Um, sometime back on one of these Zoom calls, Sylvia had the uh somebody operating a uh, a leaf blower outside and it was just the pandemic had taken over and there was this wonderful moment that i will always recall where sylvia was annoyed with the leaf blower and then she suddenly realized wait that means that somebody has a job and they're making money and they're feeding their family it changed the whole way that i look at extraneous noise in my life sweetheart thank you so much because <laughs> we're going to have to have that same philosophy today because i cannot see i i live at the top of a hill and around me are people around me and then people around them and people around them so i have the great good fortune to live on the top of the hill i moved in here 60 years ago when there wasn't anybody else one or two houses on top of the hill now there's all kinds of people there is no top of the hill. <laughs> there is a top and I am there. But the whole rest of it is full of people randomly doing. And we can't do anything about it. I don't even know who it is. So Jeff is quite right. It's background sound of people making a living. It might even be the county replacing the sewer lines. That would be a great thing. Somebody else cleaning their yard. Somebody else has a job, as Jeff points out. Okay, here we go. What would it be if this is said to be the sublime abiding, to be able in your mind to say, may all beings be at ease, wishing in gladness and in safety. If we all felt glad and safe, I feel glad this moment because we are all together. I feel physically safe. And who knows ever, I mean, I'm in California, could have an earthquake, whatever. I'm a little bit more unnerved than usual because I think the world is in a precarious position. Actually, we all know the world is in a precarious position. It's not some amazing thing that you figure out. Everybody knows. And that probably makes me a little bit more um, irritatable. But you know what? Let's sit for the first several minutes with the eyes open and look at people. Because that makes the mind feel accompanied. There you go. Take a minute. If you want to look at all the people, 
And look at all the people on page two and page three. And then let's close our eyes, wherever you are. If you're around the corner in San Rafael, or if you're in Quebec, or Toronto, or Minnesota, or Mexico, breathing in, think to yourself, and everyone else, may we all feel safe. May we all feel content. May we all feel strong. May we all feel at ease. It's just four words. May we all feel safe. May we all feel content. May we all feel strong. May we all feel at ease. I'll stay quiet for at least five minutes. If you feel a more affinity for one or the other of those blessings, if safe feels good as you say it, say that one over and over again. Try content over and over again. Try strong and try ease over and over again. They each of them feel slightly different. And looking for the slight difference is a way, in addition to keeping your attention where it is, really wakening up the attention so it sees in more subtle ways. Safe and content and strong and ease.
These last few moments, say to yourself those four wishes, safe and content and strong and at ease, holding yourself as the recipient of that, wishing that for yourself. to open your eyes and look at all the people that you can see at this moment. People you know and people you don't know. 
wish all of them safety and contentment. and strength and ease. One of the stories that I think everyone who studies what the Buddha taught hears, not only at the beginning of their practice, but often throughout it's really a paradigmatic teaching. Maybe, maybe the fundamental teaching of a woman named Kisagatami, Kisagatami, uh, who lived in the time of the Buddha, had a son that died, and having heard that the Buddha had magical powers, all kinds of magical powers, she took her son and rushed with him to where the Buddha was, nearby enough for him, her to come to him, and with her dead son, and said, I know that you're a person with all kinds of mysterious powers, and I need you to make my son alive again. And the Buddha says, in what initially sounds strange, he said, I will. Uh, but you have to go and bring, in order for me to do a ritual to bring your son back to life, you have to go into the town and find me a mustard seed from a home where no one has ever died. And after some time, Kisigatami comes back and says, and bows to the Buddha and says, I understand. And having understood that there's no house that no one has ever died. I mean, probably figure out that people who have just moved into a newly built abode doesn't count. Really, it's where is there a place that no one has been touched by the death of someone? And there is no place like that. That's the fundamental thing that we learn is the pain of losing someone dear to us. Later on in the sutta, it says, as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, as the kind of paradigmatic, that's it. You don't want your child to die. And from there, it's the, uh, uh, you know, you move out to who would want, you wouldn't want anybody to have that pain. I remembered my youth. Well, I was a grown woman, but 50 years ago, uh, when I had young children, my good friend Pat um, had a child named Brian who was diagnosed with leukemia. 50 years ago, childhood leukemia was not so treatable, and now it is. And Brian died. And um, Pat wasn't an intimate of mine, but we were in the same more or less social circles. And over the years, I watched her carry on and she had two other children. And I wondered how she did it. I couldn't figure out how she did that, recuperated herself. There's a woman who lived down the street from me 
who had, I didn't also know well. I knew she was pregnant, she was bigger and bigger, and I knew she had her baby. And then some weeks later, I heard that her baby died at a crib death. Um, and she wasn't an intimate of mine, but I couldn't even let the thought into my mind. Sorry about that. I couldn't even let that thought into my mind. Um, my son in his mid-twenties married a woman to whom he's still happily married, 40-some years later, whose um, beautiful younger brother died a few weeks after the wedding in a motorcycle accident. And uh, Jorge's mother and I were very close friends. And I knew when I talked to her that I couldn't feel what she was feeling. I felt tremendously moved by what she was going through. But I knew that my, that imagining that happening to me didn't compute in my mind. It was an unimaginable, well, I've said it before, I couldn't imagine how they were standing on their feet at that point. And there are many, when it says this should be the sublime abiding, that may all beings be at ease, I think, is a reflection of the, really the, the wisdom that the fundamental, really difficult thing about being alive is that people die. You know, if you come 2,000 years later to modern times, uh, Irvin Yalom, who's a, a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, I think, in uh, the South Bay here, has written lots of books, is a wonderful writer, and he wrote a book called Existential Psychotherapy. I remember reading it maybe 30 years ago. And his basic premise in it was that what people experience as psychiatric um, illnesses, the fear of this or a fear of that or an uh, inability to manage their lives, that people that come into therapy, and particularly in a therapy group because he worked mostly with group that psychotherapy, said everybody is fundamentally afraid of vulnerability and the fact that things die. And that everything else that we have on top of that, a fear of this or a fear of snakes or a fear of uh, lightning storms or a fear of this or a fear of that, he posited were really a top story under which is the vulnerability story. That's just a specific way that it manifests for afraid of airplanes, flavor, a lightning, a fear of this or that. It's all fundamentally an inability to say we're all vulnerable. And what we're all vulnerable is to losing someone or something that's dear to us or being lost to people. I think about um, some of those questions about how did my friends, how did my, how did my friend uh, know Amy? 
get over uh, Jorge's death. She did, I don't know. This is where I want to say, let's go from Kisika Dami to the New York Times. She didn't get over it. She got through it. She got through it. And here is Sunday's New York Times. This is a this is a palliative a palliative care physician and the author of a book called That Good Night: Life and Medicine in the Eleventh Hour. So, um, if you want to look this up, you can look up um, her her name is um, Sunita S U N I T A P U R I. She's a palliative care physician. I got to know about palliative care in the year that my husband was, a year and a half that my husband was sick, and in which we knew that he was going to die. Uh, and so I, I, I am familiar with that whole branch of medicine. And it's, um, it's particular people who are able to do palliative care, who are able to do hospice, who are able to sit with people and be okay with them being devastated uh, and be okay with devastating situations. This particular woman, um, well, what the, she's written an article and the Times has, has taken out one of those lines from it. It says, the suffering that COVID wrought can unite us. You know, if we were in a room, any of the people who've lost people to COVID if they were all in the room together and you wouldn't want to ask them did you vote for so-and-so or so-and-so or are you a democrat or a republican or an independent you want to ask them how are you managing how are you doing tell me how to do this kind of thing the line that i underlined from this whole from this whole article is I have learned this is a response to saying people pretend it's not there or pretend it's not happening look the other way I've learned to look when I want to look away and I've chosen to stay when I prefer to run out of the room and cry I'm just letting those sentences sink in because I have a sentence after that because I think it's the most important sentence and it's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. The prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. The prelude to compassion is the willingness to see. That's, it's, it's the central to the Buddha's teaching that uh, the, the particular teaching of mindfulness I think I may have said this last week, that mindfulness, when it first came to the West, when I went, went on my first mindfulness retreat, it was called a Vipassana retreat. And how many people went to Vipassana retreats? Yeah, Haya did. That was what it was called. It was translated from that, and Brahmani, and Judy. It was a, a Vipassana, it was a Vipassana retreat. And the Pali word, Vipassana, translates to seeing clearly. And it seems to me that what I want to do is see clearly. It doesn't mean to see morosely. Uh, it's just a fact that everything is fragile. Everything is temporal. 
nothing stays the same, and we will lose everybody that dies before us, otherwise they will lose us. And that's not sad, it's just true. You know, I remember I, I told you, oh, I, I just undid a whole story I used to tell. I used to tell, uh, but I had some big intuition of that one day in the middle of a retreat that everything is temporal and we lose everything that's dear to us. And I said, I said, I mean, really, I was truly moved in my own practice. And I was reporting to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I said, it's so sad. And he said, it's not sad, Sylvia, it's just true. So I thought to myself, I didn't contest it, you know, it's no point in having a logistic squabble or something, a linguistic squabble. Uh, I thought about it, it's just true. It is just true. I don't know if it's sad or it's poignant or it's touching, but if we were just, I keep thinking, if we all were touched enough, I keep, I, but you know, I keep having that thought. It rises in my mind after Sandy Hook. I think, okay, they're going to pass gun legislation now because people will look at 20 children, 26 year olds get killed. We're going to have difficult, definitely, we're going to have legislation so that not anybody can get a gun. And it doesn't happen. And then something else happens. You say, okay, definitely people are going to move. And you think, what's it going to take for people to move? I thought during the COVID that people are going to be moved. And they're going to say, okay, enough of this and enough of that. We're going to do it differently. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe it'll happen now over Ukraine. How can we be doing this? How can we be shooting people? The most moving sight that I saw in all the coverage of what's happening in on the Ukraine-Russian border was Sunday morning's newspaper that had a picture of a dead 18-year-old Russian soldier lying in the snow. Uh, and I thought to myself, a week before, this boy was home with his mother, probably. And he had no idea why he was going there. Well, maybe some of them have an idea. But most of them, apparently, from the reports, don't even know why they're there and what they're doing there. And some mother knows that her child is dead. And if this is in the era. Now, any time you can tell me this is too terrible to talk about. Here's a piece that gets in my mind. I think to myself, they can now do prenatal surgery to fix something in a in an eight-month fetus. They see, okay, there's a heart valve that's doing the wrong thing, or okay, this and that is not working right. We can fix that right now. Before the child is born, one of my grandchildren is a sonographer who specializes in pre uh, in pregnancy sonography. If we can do that, we can take a rocket and we can send it to land on Mars in a place that we decide. We can do the most amazing things. Um, a man I knew, we I've lost touch with each other over the years, had twin boys because um, he and his wife, still young, 
had held off having a child because his mother had died of Huntington's chorea. And he knew that, and he, he knew since he had the gene, he knew he had the gene that he might or might not transfer it in a, in a, in to a child if he had a child, a 50% chance of having that gene. And it is 100% lethal if you have that gene. Sooner or later, you get sick and you die a terrible death. But during, but when I knew him, he had twin boys because they had done in vitro fertilization. It's got to be 20 years ago. Sent fertilized eggs to the place in Maryland or Bethesda or someplace with maybe National Health Service at that time had the ability to look at the fertilized eggs and tell if it had uh, these embryos had that Huntington's chorea gene in them. And they could take out the good eggs that didn't have the gene and send them back to Canada where I met this man. And two of those eggs were planted into his wife. And they have, at the time, eight-year-old twins. And he said, I, I knew that they would lose me at some point in their life. But we would have these twin children all this time. And my wife would have them afterwards. And they did. He had twin eight-year-olds. I thought, we can do a thing like that. Human beings figured out how to do a thing like that. They did not figure out how to disarm and share food and clean up the toilet. How can that happen? How can that happen? And uh, I don't know. I, I, maybe it's time to sit again. Because uh, if you are at all like me, this is the kind of stuff that's really, its I find it confounding. How can that happen? If I could do something, I've been in a lot of conversations. You could send money to this or that for Ukrainian aid. And I probably will when I figure out what I could possibly do. But what I, what I hope the work would do is say, let's not do this. Let's not do this. I remember thinking some years ago, if we could just wait until everybody married everybody and the the distinguishing, you know, you're this kind of a person, you're that kind of a person, you're that kind of a person. We only have one kind of people, just people, all kinds of body shapes and face shapes and colors and all that. Maybe we'd stop killing each other, but maybe we wouldn't either. Because the Ukrainians look the same as the Russians, and they have the same stock, and they're still killing each other. How can that happen? So I find my mind is confounded. I wonder what's going to happen today in the UN. I um, I have you normally you know that I uh, I don't watch television because I find it too upsetting and too dramatized and too it's hard to find any channel that is not slanted to make you more upset than even it makes you upset but not clear so. Um, but I watched this morning because there was a speech in the United Nations and a vote that's going to happen today 
on I don't know what the you know whether whether if it censures Ukraine if it censures Russia what it's going to mean in terms of anything actually happening but a lot of uh, a lot uh, all the delegates many delegates are there and um, I don't know we'll see Linda Thomas Greenfield, who's the uh, American ambassador to the United Nations, was talking in a very poignant speech. I also saw this morning that Richard Engel, who's a journalist who's there reporting, was interviewing a woman in a hospital with a new baby that has some special needs and needs special care and isn't getting it because of the circumstances. And here he is interviewing her and he's a, I mean, the woman is not anyone I recognize, but Richard Engel is a middle-aged reporter that you recognize on TV and seen him a lot. And he said, I also have a special, had a special needs child. So I know how it feels to be the father, a parent of a special needs child that's not getting the help. I think it must be time to sit again. Yeah, maybe I'll read you this paragraph. Our country can be united by seeing all the suffering. We all are my patient. Oh. This is the same woman, the palliative care doctor, who I talked about before. She said about uh, bringing a woman to see her husband who was in the hospital dying of COVID. And she said the woman had her hands against the glass window. She couldn't go in. They wouldn't let her in. But why not? But anyway, her hands on the windows where he, I presume, might have seen it. Um, and she was pressing them, and then he died. They let her in to see them as they were taking, unplugging the equipment. And she was there. And then she stepped back, and, he, and the doctor said, I could still see her handprints on the window. We are all my patient, and we are as varied as our reactions to the suffering we and we all are the, the suffering of this patient now isn't suffering and we all are his wife our collective grief varied as a as our reactions to it can be can bind us together when it seems that nothing else will it is the one lens through which we can recognize our shared humanity none of this prevents life from moving forward and it's our best shot at bringing everybody along so now I think we'll do the rest of the Metta Sutta as a meditation. There's a line in the Metta Sutta which has changed in terms of, again, what's your best line or your favorite line. And people don't often choose it, but I've decided recently. It is the, it's the line, the line is omitting none. 
if I'm going to really do this, then I have to not despise Putin. I have to not despise anybody. I have to say, oh, someone just put in the chat, the UN resolution passed 135. I missed it, but it passed. <laughs> put it back, Carlita, for a second. Maybe everybody will see it. Um, yeah, that is from Dan Cooper. He noted the UN resolution passed 135 for, 35 abstained, and five were against. That'll be interesting to see what was against it. I won't be surprised by the abstentions, but um, all right. Omitting none. And honestly, when I first started to teach um, Metta in the 1980s, uh, 85, 80, 90, certainly by 95, we were much more teaching it all over the place. Uh, and uh, I began also to do a lot of teaching specifically in synagogues and Jewish community centers because at the same time that I'm a Buddhist, I'm also a Jew. And I'd come to teach metta, and I'd say, omitting none. And somebody would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want me to have a good feeling about Hitler? That was 30 years ago, that's what people said. So I don't want you to have a good feeling. I don't want you to have ill will. It is ill will that pains the mind and confuses the mind and causes it to do things that don't work out for everybody's well-being. Hating is not, it's hating that's off the table. The operative line from the Dhammapada is anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. That you don't, you don't, you don't fight with people. You hope to change their minds, you hope to subdue their behavior. You hope to keep them from doing things that hurt other people. It doesn't put you into non-activity, but into non-hating. I realized as we, I was reading this to you earlier today, when I read the line, this should be the sublime abiding, one should sustain this recollection. When people ask me these days, uh, it's it, it, a little convoluted when people ask me and say, uh, what's your daily practice? Do you sit every day? Do you do walking practice? Do you do metta practice every day? And I know what they mean. They mean, do I sit down for a formal amount of time? I do. Do I do walking practice back and forth, training my mind to be in the present moment? I do a lot of walking practice and walking around the neighborhood. Uh, and with my dog, I, I am not saying phrases the whole time, but I'm hoping for, you know, for good things to happen to myself and my dog and may nobody's back hurt, may nobody be getting COVID or whatever. And when people say, how many, how many, how many hours every day do you practice? I like to say, I wish I could say 24 hours or all the time that I'm up. Because the practice is not saying a phrase or sitting in a certain way or breathing in a certain way or walking in a certain way. The, the practice is not having ill will in your heart. 
anyone who ceases to be contentious, anyone who understands impermanence, ceases to be contentious. I'll tell you one more thing. It's another quite private thing, but um, my husband's father was born in Ukraine. My His father was a blacksmith. Uh, he had five or six children, some of which came to the United States and I knew them. Some of them um, escaped uh, the Ukraine and got to uh, uh, Israel. Um, my father-in-law's father, my husband's grandfather, was killed in Ukraine um, by, uh, by Ukrainians, actually, as the sides were drawing up for World War II and Germany was invading Russia or trying to, uh, Ukrainian neighbors of the Jews who were in Ukraine took the opportunity to kill their neighbors, to take their property before it was Germans who arrived. So my, my, my husband's grandfather was actually killed and buried in Ukraine. In, I'm sorry to say this, in graves they had to dig for themselves. It's hard to say. Uh, but it was 50 years ago, more than that. It was 1940, so it's now 80 years ago. And the Ukrainians that did that were not the Ukrainians who are there today. And I don't want to have ill will on the Ukrainians there today. They're all different people. They're the great grandchildren of those Ukrainians. I don't. I don't want to think of. And they voted for a liberal democracy. And uh, Vladimir Zelensky is a Jew, so it's a different Ukraine. He's not a religious Jew, but his Jewish heritage. So I'm very happy that I can really hope that the Ukraine's triumph in this, that I don't have to carry along my old habit of, or I never had that habit, but I don't have to think about, wait a minute, the Ukrainians, do I like Ukrainians? I, I like people who care about other people. And I care about those people whose own territory, that's a liberal democracy, which is what the United States is supposed to be and trying to be, hopes to be. I would feel terrible if I found that if if I found I had antipathy because of what happened several generations ago to my husband's grandparents. That was terrible. Whenever people kill other people, it's terrible. I, I really can't tell you how much I looked at that Russian soldier they said he was 18 years old, you couldn't see his face. But he felt to me like like the the, the, the stillborn baby and the, 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 the uh, sudden death baby down my street or my, um, my son's brother-in-law who had a motorcycle accident. 
or Brian who had leukemia before they figured out a cure. Everybody who's lost someone has got to feel that pain of, of, of why are we killing each other extra on top of the fact that death is normal. It's hard enough to get used to losing people just for regular reasons. But for irregular reasons, for greed and hatred and delusion, it's impossible to consider that. I can't figure it out. So when people say, how much do you meditate every day? I think I can say, my, my, I don't, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting or walking or standing or I have a timer or not, or I'm outside or inside. I am alert to the arising in my mind of ill will and to my determination not to have it take root in my mind. I'm disturbed this morning and I'm disappointed and I'm sad, but I'm not angry. That's really, I think, the whole, that's what your human beings haven't figured out how to do it yet. They can go to the moon and do prenatal surgery, but they can't figure out how to go from being angry and waiting and figures out how to do something else before it does anything. Someone once said that the ultimate um, instruction for mindfulness is the four-letter word, wait. Just wait. The mind relaxes, you think it over, you think you have to do this another way. The collateral damage is too bad. It's gotta be another way. All right, now let's really do the rest of the, of the meditation. I get my timer to work here. Okay. The point of metta meditation, for those of you who might possibly not have heard the word before, it comes, metta is a word that derives from the same stem of the word, uh, maitri, it means friendliness. It's friendliness meditation. It doesn't mean loving kindness, it means friendliness. It's different from falling in love with somebody or it's different from being annoyed by somebody. It's just wishing may all beings be at ease. That's what it is. And the sign I'm not practicing that is if my mind fills with anger, And my practice is to notice when it fills with anger and to do something about saying to myself, okay, sweetheart, you just got frightened. Relax a minute. Be sad, ma'am. But you don't have to complicate it by being angry. That, work, that makes seeing clearly harder. Instead of that, let's wish well, let's do things. Let's vote, let's make our voice heard. I love it that people are standing in the street all over, all over Russia and in this country protesting. May I feel safe? Everybody says that to themselves in their mind. May I feel safe? May I feel content. 
May I feel strong. May I live with ease. After we sit, I'm going to ask you or whoever wants to say, how differently do you feel with may I feel safe and may I feel content and may I feel strong and may I live with ease? Do you feel the same with all of them or differently? Let's try it for another minute or so. Think of somebody that you uh, love very much, that you think of as a really beloved person to you, that when the image or the thought of them comes up in your mind, your mind picks up. and make those same wishes for them.
May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Invite someone else into your mind. Another person who's a friend of yours or another kin. Of course, you can think about them all at the same time, and we will at the end. But uh, the normal prescription is to pick one person and really feel like you can hold them in your mind's eye as if you're talking to them or seeing them. I'm not a good visualizer, so I never see people. But if I call up whoever of my friends I'm thinking about, I feel their presence. I can, I can remember what they look like. But it's not so necessary for me to see them. But I think about my relationship with them and how dear it is to me.
in the formal practice of metta, after one thinks of people that they know and love and their personal family and their closest friends, they think about somebody who's um, um, but it's got a special name, a stranger, but a um, it's like somebody who's not your close circle of people. It's like the person who uh, my dentist. I don't. I truly do not think about my dentist except when I'm there. But I, I really, you know, I like them a lot. I'm kindly disposed. They do a good job. And I find when I think about the dentist or anybody else who is offering me some some assistance, some kindness on some regular basis. If I think about them and really sincerely think about them and wish them those wishes, may you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. I'll let you do that for a little bit because I just, in telling you that and in thinking of somebody in that category in my life, I realized something about my relationship with them that I hadn't realized before. So I won't say that to you. I won't tell you what, but I'll ask you later. Pick out one person or two persons. in your life and really sincerely wish them well and see what other thoughts come up in your mind.
Try to think about that experience and see what did you learn. When the instructions for metta practice were refined, Scholars think um, just maybe in, in uh, a millennium ago, not as far ago as the Buddha, the Buddha definitely preached the Metta Sutta, but thinking of this category or that category was not part of the original teachings. It came about much nearer our time. But they always included thinking about someone who was called the enemy. Somebody that um, in your mind, you, you do not want to entertain them in your, in your mind. You don't have to, but think about. Perhaps make a list of people who you're deciding today not to put in your mind, but someday maybe you could get used to thinking about. You could, you could if you want to, think of somebody and wish them well. Find some phrases that work for you. The hope is that the realization that you are, your mind is soothed by letting go of hatred is enough to just let it go. You don't forget it. Just let go of remembering it in fear, if you can. And then we'll sit for four more minutes and think about anybody who you'd like, forget anybody in the whole world. Because it's on the top of my mind, I'm thinking about the woman um, being interviewed by Richard Engel in the hospital in Ukraine with her infant baby with special needs. Which, of course, brings up all the babies with special needs in the world. But I just saw that woman, so she's in my mind as a representative. See if you can find somebody as a representative. We all have special needs. 
and you can say may you feel safe and any phrases that make you that that soothe your mind and that feel right to you may be safe and at ease which both feel like impossible when under siege let's see what happens and then we'll talk about it in just a few minutes Well, here we are. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I would love it if you could turn on your screen if you're at home. A lot of people, I think, uh, hear it later if they live in a place where it's not hearable. But for those of you who are there, 
He had like a lot of questions in the air. I feel better than I did two years, two hours ago. Do you feel better? Or worse? No. Okay. Chaya says, ah. Nancy says, okay. <laughs> so Linus, how do you up or down? Up. <laughs> okay, Rosie. I think we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because it's in everybody's mind. And it's like talking through a fog if you don't mention it. Somebody wrote a book a couple of years ago, and I think this was the name of the book, but I'm not sure. But its topic was about what do you say when you see uh, when you see a woman or a person, not even a woman. I, I think the person who wrote it is a woman. And anyway, he sees someone coming towards you in the supermarket that you know has been in compromised health and she's not an intimate of yours, but you heard that she was very sick and now here she is and she's walking towards you, so she's still walking. And you meet her and you recognize each other and you're maybe in a class with each other. Do you say, how are you to a person who's in chemo or in some other difficult situation? And there are people who say, don't bring it up. If you're not an intimate, it's not your business. And uh, the woman who wrote this book is a, a cancer patient, but she was at the time still a survivor. She said, I don't, I don't think you say to a person, how are you? Because the name of the book, I think, was I'm Terrible. Thank you for asking that uh, that to pretend that you don't know that someone's been in and out of the hospital or in and out of compromise is furthering your distance between you. And if you know them enough to know that they've been sick and you say to them, how are you? They can say, uh, I'm terrible. Thank you for asking. Whatever. What do you think about that? Or what do you think about anything? Or which are the most important sentences in the whole Metta Sutta? Or what were your experiences when you thought about different people? Or anything else that you want to say anything about? But this is a time that we're in the same room and anybody can say anything. So push your hands up button if you have something to say.